Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this episode, we're joined by Deborah Alcock-Tyler from the Directory of Social Change to mull over what the coming year might have in store for the voluntary sector. We'll also be introducing a new segment to the podcast in the form of Charity Change My Life, showcasing some of the fantastic work that charities do and the impact they have on the people they serve. But first, we'd like to wish you a very happy new year and hope you had a wonderful festive season. And if Christmas isn't a time of joy for you, then we join you in celebrating the fact that, well, it's over and the next one is some time off. Lucinda, welcome back. How was your break? My break was lovely. Thank you. I would say perhaps not quite long enough, Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's lovely to be back. Uh, Yes, had a great time with the family navigating Britain's transport. Yeah, but we got there in the end. So yeah. How about you? Well, tis the season to be wobbly, maybe, because we're all feeling a bit ill. Oh, no. Uh, which kind of put a bit of dampener on the uh, festive celebrations. But it was very nice to be at home and have a bit of a break, come back re-energised and ready for the new year. So welcome back. And it's good to have you listeners back with us again. Joining us for our first episode of 2023 is Deborah Alcott-Tyler, Chief Executive of the charity training provider, the Directory of Social Change. With her wealth of knowledge and wisdom combined with the DSC's motto of helping you to help others, we thought she'd be the ideal person to help us start the year on the right footing. And we're very happy to have her in the studio with us. Hello, Deborah. Hello there. I love that wealth of wisdom and knowledge. I feel really under pressure now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, better deliver. (laughs) And I saw on Twitter that you had quite a traumatic time over Christmas. Could you tell us what happened with Arthur? Yes, some of your listeners might know about my dog, Arthur, who I write about and tweet about quite a lot. But I dropped a mince pie. And it literally within seconds of dropping it on the floor, the blooming dog had come and woofled it, and including the aluminium foil case. So I was really worried about that. And I was worried about the case. So I rang the vets and said, look, what do I do? And they said, you don't need to worry about the aluminium foil case. It's the raisins in the mince pie that could oh. do him in. So we had to race him off to the vet. And they, had, they gave him an injection to make him be sick. Ten nice. times the poor dog. At the vet, I hope. At the vet. Oh, Not yes, at home on your they carpet. They sent us home. They said this could take a while. And it did. It was at least a few hours. But they said if they couldn't find you know, all of the contents in his stomach and he'd ingested it, he'd have to be on a drip for 48 hours. Luckily, when they dived through, they found five raisins, the pastry, the whole aluminium foil case intact, some ham and various other <laughs> items that they described as unidentified. So, and the poor dog, we picked him up two hours later. He was so woebegone, but I had no sympathy for him whatsoever because he'd scared the living daylights out of me and my partner. So, yeah. He's a dog and a half, that one. He Do you is. think he learned a lesson from that particular Well, episode? I did ask the vet that, and the vet looked at me and just laughed. <laughs> said, Probably not. So we're now a mince pie-free household forever. Aww. <laughs> Who'd have thought, though, that something as simple as a raisin could be so poisonous for dogs? Well, apparently they're really, really toxic, and you've got to get out really... So the aluminum forces would be fine. It would just pass through, but the raisins could kill them. So, you know, there was one point my partner said, should we just let him, you know, <laughs> guess he is. No, joking. Of course he was joking. <laughs> but yeah, we call him, um, he's affectionately known as the bass hole. Oh. Because he's <laughs> a... Because he is a very full on 
You know, he's a food thief par excellence. He's like, he might be big, he's nearly seven stone, but he's ninja. And he's a basset. And he's a basset. Right. Yeah, so he's uh, he can sniff a cheese sandwich. Uh, can I tell you the story of the cheese sandwiches? Yeah. The dog is gaslighting me. So it was in the summer and I'd made myself a cheese sandwich. He's fast asleep on one sofa. And I put the cheese sandwich on because I realised I hadn't got myself a glass of water. So I went into the kitchen to get a glass of water. But I came back. No cheese sandwich, but the dog in exactly the same place. <laughs> like, looked as if he had moved. So I'm looking there thinking, did I eat that cheese sandwich without realising I'd eaten it? Like, did I eat it before I went to get the water? And of course, he'd like, cheese sandwich, noticed it was free, unattended, wolfed it down. And then I'd gone back and laid on the sofa in the exact same position. My partner said, he's definitely gaslighting you, that dog. Because there was time I was thinking... Did I eat the sandwich? Anyway, he's that sort of dog. Devious. Pretty impressive. Well, we should get on to the, well, should we say the mincemeat of the uh, discussion, <laughs> um, which we're going to structure around various aspects of running a charity from fundraising to campaigning to governance issues. So perhaps a good way to start is to ask you what you think the charity sector professionals should be looking out for in the coming year. This is going to sound really weird because obviously there's always this stuff like there's changes and whatever's going on in the governance, stuff like that. But mostly... I think what we all need to be looking out for is just is making sure that we're not losing hope. Like the last three years have been so grinding. Like most of my colleagues who I talk to are absolutely exhausted and so are their staff because it's just felt, you know, more and more people needing our help, not so much money to go around. I mean, some are doing okay. Most are really struggling, having spent down loads of reserves, really worrying about where the cash is coming in. So and I think in, in those circumstances, it's incredibly easy to lose sight of the fact that the work we do matters, that it's really important that we are serving people, that yes, we may be missing some people, but there's an awful lot of people who would say, you know, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have a life or even be alive possibly in Mm. certain circumstances. So I think it's really about making sure that you're constantly focused on the purpose of being there. All the other stuff is just stuff. You know, it's the challenges that you you're going to get and you do anyway in the sector I mean you know this you've been around a long time Andy but you know the sector always struggles for funding and it's always battling with government to get its voice heard and things like that and although that's definitely harder now there's no question about that nonetheless we've already got the skills and tools and ability to be able to do that because we've been doing it for years it's just a little bit more challenging so yeah vision and hope I think is the most important thing that we need to keep hanging on to. Mm, That's definitely a good way to start the discussion I think so perhaps we could just dig down deeper into some of the things that you've touched upon already ready so fundraising yeah um should we be worried you know this is going to sound a bit wishy-washy but sort of yes and sort of no i mean fundraising goes up and down and actually very often you know when if you look at if you track data over time what you find is there isn't that much of a correlation between the economic situation how much money people give but it, it depends again where you're getting your money from so i think there has been some evidence to say that individuals have given slightly less over the last couple of years which is you know not surprising particularly um, certainly, we know that companies have given less. Um, trusts and foundations actually have given more because many of them have gone into their reserves to try and give them money. So it's, you know, it's sort of a swings and roundabout sort of thing. Those that are relying on government contracts are absolutely being squeezed. And that's, again, largely it's it's because most of the contracts that, that charities that get government money get doesn't come from central government. It comes from local authorities. And when the local authorities' budgets are squeezed, that's when those charities get their contracts squeezed. So, for example, if you're a, a big charity, like Bernardo's providing services in local authorities, you don't get your money from central government. You have to negotiate contracts. Same with um, Citizen Advice Bureau and things like that. So that's definitely uh, under an enormous amount of pressure, CABs in particular. But having said that, what happens is, is in my experience over what, 30 odd plus years now in the sector, 
is that when we're told constantly there isn't enough money, we stop asking. And that's just crazy. It's mm. like, because it's almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I've always, always said to people, just keep asking. And also the other thing we do is we ask for less, which again is completely nuts. So keep asking and ask for as much as you need. In fact, even ask for more if you can. I think the other thing we need to be really aware of, and I think this is a message more to funders than fundraisers, but it's a bit of the both, is that actually lots of us have spent down our reserves. We've got very little left. And, you know, people will say, well, if you don't have decent reserves, it means you're not very well run. But the trouble is, if you spent your reserves in trouble, which is what they're for, ultimately, so you absolutely should have spent down your reserves, but you need to build them back up again. Lots of people don't want to give you money in order to pop into your reserves. But I think we've got to be more open about that, particularly with formal funders like companies in the state and um, trust and foundation so forth and say we need to build up our reserves so of this grant we would like to put away five percent or whatever the amount is into our reserves pot in order to build us back up lots of funders will say no but if we don't ask we definitely don't get and what we tend to do is we kind of like squiddle around the edges and try and squirrel away bits which we're used to doing but actually let's be more upfront about it let's say if you want to fund us, we're really grateful for that. If you want us to be robust and strong, please, can you allow us to use some of your grant money or some of your contract money in order to boost our reserves? And particularly when it comes to government money, because the government absolutely does deals with private sector companies where they're allowed to make profits out of it. So why on earth and charities say ours isn't profits, but it is about shoring up our reserves so we're stable for the future? Isn't that a better funding option? And there's an interesting point about funders trusts and foundations themselves i mean obviously i know that one of the major bits of work the dsc does is your guide to trusts and foundations um so it's from your point of view you know we've seen trusts saying recently well actually you know we know times are tough for the voluntary sector but actually we're going to give more yeah we're going to delve into our reserves yeah. a bit more and help out what's your view on how charities can kind of approach them at the moment well do you know like with trust it's still about relationships so we kind of get because trust and foundations and i'm a trustee of one obviously get an awful lot of applications in it's very easy for us to hide behind um application forms and things like that but actually particularly if you've created a relationship with the funder Keep the relationship going. Pick up the phone. Ring your grant officer or whoever it is who's managing your grant and tell them the truth about what's going on. Because actually no trust or foundation wants the charity they've funded to fail. And if you don't tell them that you're in a real dire straits and this is a real problem, they can't help. So I would always say you're so much better telling the truth and picking up the phone and saying, look, especially because, you know, whether there are longer term grants, the money you put in was at the cost at the time and the service that you felt you had to provide. Things have changed since then. Costs have shot through the roof. We've got more people coming. So going back to the organisation and saying, look, that grant application we filled in in 2021, actually in 2023, our costs have risen through the roof. The portion of what we've had to use on energy bills, for example, means that we can't now employ that volunteer manager or whatever the thing happens to be. Tell them that. And the worst thing that happens is they say no tough, but it's so unlikely. I'm going to say it again. Trusts and foundations do not want the charities they fund to fail. The best thing you can ever do is tell them the truth. Say we're struggling. Can you help? And what about your view on funding from the public? You've talked about government funded projects are likely to be squeezed. But what do you think about the public donating power there was a brief period when the government was the biggest fund of the sector it didn't last that long in fairness in my experience the public are generous if you ask them and you have to be brave about asking them I think we get we kind of have this sort of um like almost Uriah Heap 
kind of like ever so humble, you know, do you mind if I, you know, take this money? And I was like, never, ever be embarrassed to ask for money to help people or animals or the environment. Like, don't you, could you possibly spare? No, don't ask people to spare stuff. Go out and say, look, we have this incredibly important project that's helping homeless people or is that dealing with young people with severe mental health issues. This is massively important work. Please, can you help us to help these people? How can you support us in that? So I think it's about again being braver and bolder and more truthful and also about like not being intimidated into thinking you mustn't ask you mustn't write you mustn't send flyers you mustn't you know I mean provided you're doing it within the rules obviously but I mean I think we tend to take the rules rather more seriously than we need to in the sense that ends we end up again what we do a lot in the sector is we self-censor we mustn't ask we mustn't speak out we mustn't offend we mustn't get in anybody's way and i think because people are struggling and because partly because people, people are struggling feeling partly the pinch. because we don't want to offend anybody partly because we feel embarrassed like for some weird reason we feel embarrassed to ask for money in the sector and yet they don't feel in the least bit embarrassed about selling all that sort of tat in you know in a supermarket in a shop no they're not embarrassed about selling that stuff so why would we be embarrassed about asking for money for like we're saving lives, dogs, people, the environment, you know. Basset hounds. Basset hounds, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, on that note, what's your view on the Climate for Charity campaigning? I mean, it's a similar situation. Obviously, everyone's feeling squeezed and difficult. But in terms of how charities relate to government and other public bodies for lobbying, campaigning, etc., what's your assessment of how that will be in this coming year? I think it will be as hostile as it ever has been. However, I think, again, we have massively self-censored. There is almost nothing we can't say in furtherance of our course, almost nothing. The only thing we can't say is vote for this party over that party. But you can absolutely say, in our opinion, this policy is the right one to help serve the people we cause, provided you can relate it to your cause. I mean, there was some kind of like, you know, slightly technical bits in terms of the Charity Commission guidance, but ultimately just say it. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to get censured or told off or, you know, and I think that if charities aren't at the forefront of advocating for change, of campaigning, of, you know, lobbying is a funny word because lobbying always has this sort of, for me, it's kind of this thing of like corridors and doing deals and stuff like that. I think our job is not to lobby, it's to campaign. Which And I think there's an absolute nuance between them. And I think we have to speak out because the truth is, if we don't, nobody will. The interesting thing is, nothing changes in the world because of the moral conscience of the person at the top. Nothing. It always, always takes activism, whatever it is, whether it's votes for women, whether it's animal rights, whether it's children's rights. It never starts with somebody at the top saying, oh, I'd quite like to do something for you know, poor people or refugees or asylum seekers. It starts from a group of people saying this is wrong, this is unfair and applying pressure. And if you don't do it publicly and you don't campaign, it just doesn't change. Mm. And I have to be honest, you get all these people saying, well, well, you know, quiet corridor conversations. Where is the evidence that that works? I've never seen that. Most of the major changes we've seen in legislation and regulation in our society has come from public campaigning, not some, you know, sir here having a chat with some lord over there who knows, you know, Minister XYZ over there. I think that's... Bull, without the rest of the word. <laughs> the first time you paused there. Yeah, <laughs> I caught myself just in time. And in terms of the, the campaigning climate for charities, I mean, you obviously you touched on it being hostile at yeah. the moment. Is it your sense that that's becoming more brittle, harder or easier? You know, obviously we've seen some very high profile campaigns in recent years gain great success yeah. and traction where people, individuals, charities have spoken out very boldly. Yes. How is that kind of changing, do you think, at the moment? I do think charities are getting bolder. But I think we've been driven to it in a way. I think that so many charities are now absolutely desperate 
stakes that you are finding more and more people saying, we've just got to say something now. So I think that charities are getting bolder. I think our influence over central government policy is very low, but I think that our influence over what the public thinks is probably gaining traction. I mean, you know, obviously mainstream media, print media in particular, can be a real challenge for our sector because the vast majority of the papers that are sold in the country are things like the Mail and the Telegraph and the Sun and the Express, which take a very particular view and they tend not to be that charity friendly. Although I've always found this really strange because the interesting thing about it is, in principle, a conservative party or government ought to be very pro-charities because charities are effectively people helping themselves, which is what, which is basically what, mm. I mean, I'm not sure they have an ideology anymore, but that if that was the ideology, that would have been. They would have encouraged charities and they would have wanted to support charities and they would have wanted to fund charities. Whereas with Labour, you'd think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't it? Because their ideology is actually, you know, not anti-charity, but actually the state ought to do more to step in. Now, I'm not saying which of those is right or wrong. What I'm saying is it seems to have really swapped around, which seems like really odd to me. And, and I find it really weird that this government of all governments is so hostile to charities who are effectively helping themselves and helping other people not helping themselves you know what I mean helping other people like they're stepping up and doing themselves so it's it's utterly bizarre and the other thing of course they say is that charity is being really left-wing but again if you actually look at the data so the vast majority of charities headquarters in particular are based in London and the southeast London and the southeast is very blue with the odd pockets of sort of um red around the vast majority of trustees who sit on boards of charities in London and the southeast which is where most of them are based are clearly and very obviously more blue than they are red so where is this thing coming from about these left-wing charities who are anti you know when the trustees of those charities are very often not in the least bit left, and they're the governors of it. So, yeah, I think there are some myths and tropes that float around that, you know, don't help. Anyway, I can't remember if I was answering the question, Andy, but <laughs> keep on campaigning, charities. Don't be afraid. And, you know, and what's the worst that can happen? You get into trouble. So what? You might have saved a life by saying something out loud that you didn't before. So do you think charities should be doing more in the campaigning area? 100%. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they should. What is the point of us just treating the problem if we're not actively resolving the problem because the thing is we as charities when we're treating the problem we know where the problems have come from so for example if you think about CABs in particular which I have a particular fondness for when they're doing debt advice so what happens is they get really really squeezed in their budgets to be told you've just got to give debt advice but actually you don't end up in debt by accident all sorts of things happen in people's lives like they have breakdowns or they have or their relationships end or something terrible happens to them or they lose their job or they are you know in a cycle of depression with mental health issues and all the rest of it and if you don't treat those giving them advice about you know how to manage your credit and you know where to go to to get financial support is never going to solve the problem in the longer term so they know you've got to spend more time with these people in order to help them. And so therefore, we need organisations to be coming out and saying, if you solve the problems at source, we won't end up spending all this money having to fix the situation once it's got too bad to solve. And again, it's one of my real frustrations is, you know, it's not about how many people you can get through the system at any one time. It's about the quality of the work you're doing that. And that's expensive. Of course it is. You know, helping people isn't cheap. Why should it be? And why should we try and make it cheap? And why should they say, like, is it value for money? Is a human being's life and future value for money? Of course it blooming is, you know. Should we talk a bit about governance? Oh, yes. I know that's a subject that's close to your heart as well. What's your view on what the future will hold this coming year for kind of charity governance? And looking at things like environmental and social governance, there's, you know, there's a whole wealth of stuff going on there. I wonder what your view is. 
Yeah, I think trustees are going to need to up their game. I think that for years and years and years, there's been kind of a model of trusteeship, which which has worked perfectly fine. You know, charities have been doing okay and all the rest of it. But I think the world has changed so much now that we can't now afford as trustees to just be thinking about the actual direct work of our charity. We've got to take into account the wider societal and environmental context. And if you think, if you think about some of the scandals that we've seen over the last few years, you know, in terms of racism in organisations, in some places, homophobia, etc. And what you'll find is that at trustee level, they didn't take it seriously. And when I say didn't take it seriously, I don't mean that they didn't care. I think it just wasn't on the radar, as I think it is now. So I think trustees have got to start really, really being cognizant of societal pressures within their own charities. And actually, I was talking to my colleagues about this this morning when I was telling them I was coming here today. And we were talking about the fact that there are so many things that can get in the way of charities running well. So, for example, of course, there's the race issue. There's also class, which is a massive issue in our sector, you know. Uh, you know, it is very, very difficult for people to progress, you know, if they don't come from a particular background and things like that. And then I think that, you know, what trustees have got to do is they've got to start stepping up and saying, you know, we need to engage in this. We need to educate ourselves. Often with boards, what happens is, is they say the staff need to be educated, but they don't think they need to. You find this a lot with anti-racism work where they'll put together a programme, you know, the staff have to go and learn about unconscious bias or, you know, whatever thing happens to be, but they don't do it themselves. Or they say, oh, I've done that in my own workplace, you know, rather than actually starting from where they are. So I think there's definitely that. And I think the other thing is you've got to assume that there's a problem. You know, when we suddenly get these scandals of like your reports come out in third sector about this absolutely dreadful situation with racism and they'd done a report and the report got published. I'm like, don't wait for the blooming report. Assume you've got a problem, fix it now. You don't need a report and then to react to a report. That doesn't help anybody. Just start by saying we're part of society. You know, of course we're going to have these issues in our organisations. Let's assume that they exist and let's just take steps to fix it. So I think definitely things like that. I think also... Trustees, again, you know, the money is a massive worry because, of course, I think what many people don't understand about trustees is that, is that they're the legally accountable ones. So they get very cautious about money, which you can understand, because if they are known to have been operating knowingly insolvently, then they can get personally prosecuted, whatever indemnities they have. Um, and I think what happens is that makes them overcautious. And I think the, you know, it's like it's about saying to trustees as governors, your job is to deliver on the work of the charity and also to take risks, provided you have discussed those risks. You've talked about the pros and cons of it. You've minuted it properly and you've said, we still think this is a risk that we need to take. Then you'll be fine. It's only if somebody said, we're absolutely going to go bust next Thursday. Let's not tell anybody. That's when you're going to get into trouble. So, yeah, I think it's about, you know, stepping up. And in terms of, Going into 2023, it looks like in many cases that we're going to continue to see this trend of falling revenues, yeah. eating into reserves, and conversely, increasing demand for the services yeah. that charities are offering. What's your advice to charity management facing this predicament? And for example, should charities be looking to form more partnerships with each other? Yes, although forced partnerships, in my experience, never worked terribly well because, you know, we don't all get on with each other. Not even even two homeless charities don't have the same values and ethos, even if they're apparently on the surface doing the same work. So I think, yeah, of course, partnerships and cooperation. I certainly think things like sharing stuff. So like if you happen to be an organization that has a building, share your building. You know, let somebody else come and use your services and your facilities, smaller charities in the area. So I'd really encourage things like that. Um, but I think it, it's more to do with it. Because the thing about the voluntary sector, the voluntary sector cannot fail. 
And when I say cannot fail, I mean literally can't fail. Not that it mustn't, but that it can't. And the reason it can't is because human beings are driven to help each other. You know, whatever you do, no matter how you know much pressure you put on the financial side of a charity, there will always be volunteers who want to come and help. There will always be those people who want to step up. And I would say that what we need to do is focus on capturing people's hearts. If you convince somebody, if you touch their heart with your cause, they are loyal to you. They will give you their money. They'll give you their time. So even if you run out of money... Go and capture volunteers. It's, you know, I, f- I find this thing interesting about, you know, the whole sort of shape of volunteering in the country. People volunteer for causes, not for charities. They volunteer for things they care about. There are not that many people who just want to volunteer and can happily trade volunteering between different organisations. The reality is most people care about, you know, Essex Air Ambulance or, you know, RSPCA or whatever the thing happens to be and smaller charities, obviously. So I'd be saying like really, really build up capturing the hearts of your community, really focus on those volunteers. Money comes and goes. It will come up, it will come down. You need to do practical things, ask for an overdraft, negotiate loans, you know, speak to your funders and get more money. So, of course, all of those practical things. But ultimately, what's going to make your charity survive is the human beings who are willing to give their time and effort and energy to just. So I would say this needs to be a year of focusing on valuing, attracting, loving and retaining your volunteers. And on a kind of positive note... Are there reasons to be cheerful, do you think, for 2023? I mean, are there there things that the voluntary sector can look forward to this year? At the risk of sounding political, the end is in sight. (laughs) You know, I mean, the thing about it is, is things always change. You know, it's so, and I felt like that towards the end of the year. I, I wrote a piece you know, for for DSC about actually when it comes to it, you know, we have to go into situations hopeful. An old boss of mine used to say, without hope, the situation's hopeless, which is true. And of course, nothing's ever hopeless. Things will change. I think I would just say that we have all the skills and the ability and the experience and the knowledge that we need to keep going. We do, because we've been doing it for decades. It's never, ever, ever been easy to run a charity or to be in a charity, ever. I can't think of a single time when people said, well, that was a piece of pie. I'm sure you've come across it. And one day you should do a story about it actually but lots and lots of private sector folk who come into the charitable sector saying right I did my bit in business you know and I want to come here now because I feel I want to give back I want to do good and then they'll say to me oh for the love of God I had no this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life it's so stressful which it is because of course what we have is an emotional connection like our work isn't just about delivering the work it's like people actually suffer animals suffer the environment suffers and so the stresses on you as a charity worker are massive because it's not just about not delivering the profits for somebody. It's about the fact that if we don't do our jobs well, people are massively negatively affected. So I think that we just have to remind ourselves we're flipping brilliant at what we do. You know, we're really, really, really good. We change people's lives. And I would say that's the hope Mm. as we go forward, that we can weather the storms. And if we can't, if the charity folds, pick yourself up and start again. There are still people out there who are going to need our help. And actually, the other thing I would say is if your charity is in trouble and failing, it's very unlikely to be your fault. You know, we tend to berate ourselves, particularly as chief executives, like, you know, the money's not coming in. What am I doing wrong? You know, I can't seem to get any traction with my local authority or with the government. And actually, most of the time, it's not about you. It's about the environment in which you're operating. And you just mustn't give up. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of last year, I think it's safe to say that most chief executives in the sector were knackered, really, really tired and hopefully had a bit of a breather over Christmas. But a week or two of leave isn't really going to solve that problem. So beyond being hopeful and continuing the energy and having faith in yourself, what other advice do you have for voluntary sector workers preparing themselves for this coming year? 
Yeah, it's this interesting thing about resilience, isn't it? It's like it's very easy to say cheer up. And actually, I mean, because I had a conversation with a few colleagues just before Christmas and, we were, and we were, I was talking about how most of the chief assessors I'm speaking to are literally on their knees. They're so tired. They're absolutely knackered and that they feel ground down and just not sure they've got the energy to keep going. And um, so I was saying all this and, and, you know, saying like, you know, and lots of them in like real trouble with their reserves, worried about finance and cash flow and things like that. And then one of my colleagues said, oh, you know, well, what they need is good stories. Let's share the good stuff. And they also need to take care of their mental health. And I can remember thinking at the time, that was not helpful, actually, because if your charity's in trouble, hearing that somebody else's isn't, isn't helpful. No. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't help. And actually, what was interesting is that in that same conversation, one of my colleagues was talking about their particular charity and saying they've had to make redundancies. They've got practically no reserves left. They're really, really worried about the future. feels terrible. And that cheered me up. I felt better. <laughs> and I know it sounds a weird thing to say, but I, th- I think there's something about share the truth. You know, being able to say it is really tough and it's not our fault that it's tough, but we can like come together and share that stuff rather than, you know, glossing over it and sort of pretending that, you know, it's like optimism. I I don't like the word optimism because it it sort of presumes that, you know, things are just going to happen. Whereas I think hope is a much better thing because with hope comes action, you know, so... I've completely forgotten the question now, but anyway, something along those lines. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's great. I think you've answered how voluntary sector workers can prepare themselves for your head. Oh, sorry, you've some perspective as well. Mm. And also, sorry, the other thing I would say is, and I will probably get duffed up for this because people say, like, we shouldn't rely on goodwill and, you know, the vacation. But the reality is we're not the only people struggling with our mental health, with pressures at work, with whether the money's coming in and things like that. They are in the private sector as well. But in the private sector, they're doing it to make somebody else money. So all of that they're dealing with is actually so some other person, you know, can like pay for therapy on a yacht in the Bahamas or whatever. Whereas in our sector, we're doing all of that in service of others. And so that's what I do in my worst moments, I think this is worth it because I'm doing it in service of others. I'm not doing it for somebody else to make shed loads of money or to not there's anything particularly wrong with making profit because we need that, obviously, for the you know, for the economy and, you know, because money comes around and stuff like that. But you get my point. So I would say to people in those deepest, awfulest moments, as well as all the stuff that, of course, you must, you know, do the things to look after your mental health, just remember what you're doing it for. And for me personally, that tends to help. Deborah Alcock-Tyler, Chief Executive of the Directory of Sexual Change. Thanks very much for joining us. Was that it? Now it's time for a new feature on the Third Sector podcast in the form of Charity Changed My Life. We bring you the stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better through the work of charities. And to start us off, we head to Northern Ireland to hear from Mr. Gabriel Mallon from the Blackwater Community Barge Project, who has benefited from the Wheelie Boat Trust, a charity that facilitates the supply of specially designed boats to enable people with physical disabilities to get out onto the water. You'll hear Gabriel talking about the V20 model, which is a 6.2 metre powerboat with a bow door that opens to give step-free roll-on access and a remote helm for skippers in wheelchairs. Hi, my name's Gabriel and I'm from a little city in Ireland called Armagh. I am a paraplegic and wheelchair user for about 17 years now. About two years ago, a local community group called the Blackwater Community Barge Project purchased a V20 from the wheelie boat. They gave me a call and they asked would I like to join a group of about 15 volunteers, which I am the only disabled volunteer. Being part of the team, I help assist passengers and we give history talks, nature talks about the local river Blackwater. 
we also look after the safety and maintenance of A20. I would say my life has improved tenfold outside the community group. I have now a keen interest in wildlife, especially the bird life on the river. I am also interested in history, archaeology and geology. I joined a local history group outside the community group. I also joined the local Irish Waterways Association to help preserve and look after the local Blackwater River. Being part of the community group with the help of the wheelboat has improved my mental health significantly and has helped me engage with society. Well, if that doesn't inspire you to carry on your good work, I don't know what will. Yeah, that was great to hear that. It's nice to start the new year off with a great new story of uh, something positive going on in the voluntary sector. Absolutely. And we hope to hear many more such stories of charities changing people's lives for the better in this little segment of the podcast. And if you'd like your organisation to be featured, we'd love to hear from you. All it takes is a short voice message from someone who's benefited from your services submitted to our special Charity Change My Life voice note mailbox. You can find the link to record your message and further guidance in the show notes to the episode. Yeah, and do get involved if you've got a good story to tell, because we know there are thousands out there that listeners would enjoy hearing. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another episode. So if you've enjoyed this one, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know about it. But for now, I'm Andy Ricketts. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. Thank you to our guest, Deborah Alcock-Tyler, and our producer, Nav Powell. Join us again next week. 